Our knowledge is partial and incomplete. Even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. 1 Corinthians 13.9 The Sovereign Lord will do nothing without revealing it to His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can help but prophesy? Amos 3, verses 7 and 8. I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that he would put his spirit on all of them. Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. The prophets of Israel and Judah did not all have powerful emotional experiences with open visions like Daniel or Ezekiel or Isaiah had. Some, like Amos or Nahum or even Jeremiah, were moved by the inner witness of God's word on their hearts while they observed the sins of the people and the movements of the evil nations that surrounded them. But even those with great visual encounters weren't merely awakened by the visions themselves. They were already aware of their times. They weren't just minding their own business one day and then suddenly became invaded by heaven. They were already watching when the visions came. The prophets were God's voice to their generation, calling his people to return to him or face the consequences. Now we watch also, and in our weakness, coupled with maybe some bad teaching, sometimes we think that the warnings of the prophets are threats. We misread the story. We misread the heart of God behind the story. We think it says, You're not doing what I want you to do, so I'm going to make you pay. That's not the heart of the warnings at all. The true message would be more like, if you continue to reject my ways, which are the ways of love and truth and goodness, if you choose to live outside the circle of my protection, and worse, choose to live in opposition to my ways, or even more worse, demand that I bow to your ways in place of my ways. The only possible result will be calamity and death. There's no alternative reality you can willfully choose that will work out for you. It's impossible for me to accommodate you in your rebellion, for such is totally against my nature, and it is my nature that gives all existence to nature. Demanding your way against my way can only result in total self-annihilation. So don't die. Live. That's the heart of God. For instance, in Ezekiel chapter 14, God warns that when a country, and notice it says when a country, that is any country, not just Israel, When a country willfully departs from God and lives in opposition to his ways, he will send among them four natural results of their evil, famine, war, beasts, and disease. If we picture God as directly making these four horrors come upon an otherwise functional, orderly people, we misunderstand. There's a domino effect with One evil causing the next evil, and the next evil, and the next evil. Famine brings war. War brings invading beasts. Then this brings disease, and it finally results in death. That begins with God's decree of no rain, 
but then the natural results follow. Most of the evils described as judgments are the natural results of God's wisdom having been rejected. The driver who refuses to obey the speed laws and warning signs goes over the cliff not because gravity is his enemy, but because his reckless foolishness is. God's wrath is a pure and righteous response to evil, just as white corpuscles react to infection. It's a sad error that in some Christian theology, God is described as having in his nature a need to express wrath as part of his self-revelation. The idea that he purposefully created evil in order to have a place to vent his rage against evil is itself an evil doctrine. In him is light. There is no darkness in him at all. But just as darkness is destroyed by the light, so evil is destroyed by God's goodness. God is never looking for a way to, quote, express his rage against evil. His very being is always raging against evil all the time. Psalm 7 verse 11 in the King James Version says, God is angry at the wicked every day. The Hebrew says, El exacts vengeance on the wicked all the time. Now here's a strange fact. The Septuagint and the Aramaic, as well as Young's literal translation of this verse, says the very opposite, that God is not angry all the time. And the Douay version, based on the Vulgate, actually translates this verse as a question. Is God angry every day, it says? Let's look at the entire context. I want to do that in the living Bible version because the language is clear and it's still faithful to the Hebrew poetic imagery. God is a judge who is perfectly fair and he is angry with the wicked every day. Unless they repent, he will sharpen his sword and slay them. He has bent and strung his bow and fitted it with deadly arrows made from shafts of fire. The wicked conceives a plot labors with its dark details, and then brings to birth treachery and lies. May he fall in his own trap. May the violence he planned for others boomerang upon himself, and let him die. Oh, how grateful and thankful I am to the Lord, because he is good. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, who is above all lords. Now, what do we make of this? When you put it all together, it is not contradictory. Whenever you think you've hit upon an impossible contradiction in Scripture, you've actually found a gold mine of truth waiting for you to mine it out, if you're willing to do the work. If we read in the King James Version, God is angry at the wicked every day. Then we read in the other translations, God is not angry with the wicked every day. In our Greco-Roman linear thinking, we come to a mathematical conclusion instead of a poetic prophetic one a Greek one instead of a Hebraic one, and we say, hey, it's impossible for both to be right. It's either one or the other, period. But scriptures don't spell out quite like that. It takes humility, worshipful submission, and patient study to get the precious ore out of the treasury of scripture. God is angry at evil all the time. We should praise him for that. Imagine if God was not angry at evil. What a horror the universe would be. God is equally slow to anger. 
which means that though his heart is 100% set against evil 100% of the time, that same heart is willing to wait in his judgment, in his desire that evil men repent. In Psalm 7, those who are set on evil are plotting from the shadows and God is watching with his own bowstring ready to draw the arrow back. In Psalm 11, which we will look at in detail in a moment, he's also watching them methodically drawing back their bow and aiming their arrows at the righteous. God is slow to anger. It doesn't mean he's not angry at all, but his anger is wise, measured, and just. The Hebrew word is erech apayim, which means to be long in the nostrils. Now, does that help you? (laughs) God takes long, deep breaths. That's what it means. He counts to ten. His anger grows. His anger grows in direct response to the growing choices of evil people. But we must never think he gets mad. Just as equally, we must never think he does not get angry. Mad means emotionally over the top. We use it in our vernacular to equate not only anger, but mental illness. Angry, related to God, means, among other things, a wise and holy decision to act against evil. So he is angry at the wicked at every moment, but he is not exploding with madness. But in the face of mounting wickedness, he takes long breaths. His nostrils flare at the evil, but the breath of God Offer life if there is any sign of repentance. If there is no repentance, there will come a point at which the flaring nostrils explode with wrath. The prophetic poetic imagery here of the nostrils is the same breath which was offering life becomes a blast of raging fire against evil. See, it's not two separate and opposite emotions in God. His goodness gives life. That same goodness destroys evil which seeks to destroy the life he gives. The wrath is on two levels. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is always being revealed, always, continuous. Against all ungodliness, God is angry with the wicked every day. But his mercy is everlasting and his long-suffering is in hope of men's repentance. And that is greater in him than his wrath. But there comes a time known only to him when mercy is no longer a righteous response. Then the second level of wrath is manifested, the direct intervening hand of God bringing judgment on evil. And that wrath has levels in it. The ultimate manifestation is the final wrath of God described in Revelation 16 and other places. We'll not spend time on that subject here. We're more focused on the wrath that comes both from God's more patient, indirect anger that is being manifested through the outworking of people's evil choices and lifestyles, because that's where we are now. The entire thought, when put together, might sound like this. God stands always for what is right. And because he is righteous, he is angry at evil every moment. Yet he's not angry in his heart towards his creation, which he loves. Yet his love must eventually destroy evil. Evil is anti-life. God's wrathful vengeance is pictured accurately if we imagine how a father would respond to an attack on his child 
the analogy isn't perfect in that a watching father doesn't know everything the way God knows it. But the imagery will still make the point, I think. The vigilant, protective, life-giving father watches the approaching assailant. He tests the movement of the potential troublemaker, calculating the appropriate response when necessary. At the moment the assailant commits himself to the very action of evil, that becomes the moment when the slow-growing wrath in that protective father becomes sheer, unappeasable wrath, pouring down on the head of the invader. Once the wrath is released, there's no longer any room for appeasement, apology, or retreat for the evildoer. Wrath is coming on him from that moment. Now again, all analogies are inadequate for every aspect of an illustration, but I think we get the picture. Total anger under control and released in full at the appropriate moment, at which point there's no possibility of reprieve for the evildoer. Psalm 76 verse 10 is very difficult to translate well, but it says, Your wrath against mankind's wrath praises you. And what is left, seemingly unfinished, you will wear like a belt until you find it useful for other purposes, which will also praise you. That's an amplified translation of that verse. It refers to how human wrath brings God's glory by how it ends up serving God's purpose. And whatever is left over, unaddressed, of that wrath, God puts on himself like a trophy of battle to use for other purposes as he chooses. Now, this is a poetic picture, obviously. Psalm 11 says, How dare you tell me to flee as a bird to the mountains for safety when I am trusting in the Lord? For the wicked have strung their bows and drawn their arrows tight against the bowstrings and are aiming to ambush the people of God. Law and order have collapsed, we are told. What can the righteous do but run away? But the Lord is still in his holy temple. He rules from heaven. He closely watches everything that happens here on earth. He puts the righteous and the wicked into the testing place, and he hates those who love violence. He will rain down fire and brimstone on the wicked and scorch them with his burning breath. For God is good, and he loves goodness. The godly shall see his face shining down in mercy and love upon them. Do you see the parallel picture in Psalm 7 and Psalm 11? God watches. He hates evil and is totally angry at it constantly because he is totally loving and good constantly. It is impossible for him to be one without the other. How can you not rejoice and worship at the remembrance that God's wrath is set always against evil? But that means he hates all the evil in us, too. And in his sovereign power and wisdom, he works all things by his love for us to bring good to and in us and thereby glorify his holiness in the process. This is Romans 8.28. The Phillips version of Romans 8.28 says, We know that for all who love God, everything that happens is fit together into a pattern for ultimate good. Now, God's chastening is part of this pattern. He does it with slow, patient, deliberate, and long-suffering breaths. 
Those angry breaths are life-giving breaths for us. They will never become fiery, wrathful breaths toward us. But he will continually be dealing with our sin to bring us fully into his likeness because only in the fullness of his likeness is there fullness of life. He loves us totally, so he chastises totally in order to cleanse totally so we can enjoy life totally. That to me is not hard to understand or to believe. So let's talk about greasy grace in the light of what I'm saying. There's a lot being preached today about grace. So much of it is wonderful and greatly needed, especially for folks who've never known anything in their religious backgrounds except legalism and frightening preaching. I have a friend who came from a very painful religious legalism background who said to me not long ago, I'm really thankful for greasy grace or I would have never made it. Now I understand what he meant. But mixed in with so much good, there is a truly bad misunderstanding of grace in some circles. Some simply teach that grace covers all sin in the sense that we no longer need to be concerned with sin at all. We don't even have to repent to God when we willfully sin, contrary to many scriptures like Revelation chapter 2, chapter 3, just to name one of many This idea is that Jesus died for us in order to free us from the law of God, as if the law of God was some evil we needed to be freed from. So if you willfully break that righteous law, it's okay, you're covered. That would mean that Jesus didn't die to save us from sin, but to save us for sin. He didn't die to fulfill the law, but to destroy it. The law is not good and righteous and holy, as the Bible says, but the law is an evil, legalistic, and ugly thing. It's a burden for which we need to be set free. Now, this is erroneous in, and, and as bad a misunderstanding in one direction as harsh legalism is in the other. The truth is not complicated. God loves us and hates sin. He hates sin because sin destroys life. He destroyed the penalty of sin at the cross. Now he's working in us to bring forth a people who live free from the power of sin, which he also does through the cross. At his return, we will be freed from the very presence of sin. Do you get that? At forgiveness, we're set free of the penalty of sin. In sanctification and spiritual maturity, we come to be free of the power of sin and at the resurrection of our body will be free from the presence of sin. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, offering salvation to all, freeing us from the penalty of sin. And teaching us, what, what teaches us? Grace teaches us. What does grace do? Grace teaches. What does it teach? Teaching us to say no to all ungodliness and worldly passions so that we may live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. That's freedom from the power of sin. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are eager to do what is right. At his return, we'll be free from the presence of sin. 
But to hear some teachers, the idea is that God merely covers our sin with grace, and if we continue living as we always have, grace is there to pay the bills. Now, I'm thankful that that's not true. I'm thankful for God's mercy on me and for his unmerciful wrath on my sin. I'm thankful for his grace to transform me from the person I used to be to the person he intends me to become by not being compromising on sin. But it is typical of our current adolescent self-centered culture to turn the cross from an instrument of death to self and make it into an instrument of celebration of self. The problem comes on the other end when we run into well-meaning preachers who make God sound like he's angry because someone broke some religious rule or who make it sound like God's angry when we stumble, when we fall, when we fail. God is so uptight and rigid that he enjoys giving out beatings for rule-breaking. This is sadly how many, many people think because, sadly, that's what they were taught in their churches. Hell's Public Relations ad agency puts out an image of some sourpuss, black-robed school monitor with a hickory stick rushing over to beat on the first defenseless child who accidentally steps out of line. Who would not hate that image? But God, behaving like a bad grandpa who just wants everybody to have a good time, no matter how much sin is involved, ain't that ain't it either. The real truth is the watchful father that I've already described. All analogies break down at some point, but surely you can see the difference. It's not complicated. God loves us, and that's one reason why he hates sin. These are not opposite truths. They are one and the same. Any parent who loves a child understands this without any struggle. Just soak in a few words about God here. Just let them bathe your inner being and wash your imagination. Ezekiel eighteen twenty three and 32. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? And not that he should turn from his ways and live? But why will you die? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, but that you would Turn and live. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Don't let the wise glory in their wisdom or the mighty celebrate their strength or the rich rejoice in riches, but let them celebrate that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who does what is just and right and who acts justly. And in these things I delight. The Living Bible says, I love being this way, says the Lord. Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Micah seven eighteen. Who is a God like you that pardons iniquity? You do not retain your anger forever, because you delight in mercy. Hosea 6, 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and intimacy with me more than all burnt offerings. Verse 12. Sow to yourselves in righteousness and reap mercy. Break up your fallow ground, 
for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness upon you. Amos 5.14 Seek good and not evil so you can live, so the Lord your God can be with you. Verse 15 Hate the evil and love the good and establish justice. Verse 24 Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness is a never-failing stream. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and overflowing in mercy. He will not always reprimand, neither will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us after our sins or rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Like a father who has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. Listen to what the Lord says. Who is high and lofty, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place, but also with him who has a contrite and broken spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and restore the heart of the broken ones. Luke 6.35 God is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. James 3.17 The wisdom which is from God which means which God is this is what God is like. He's pure, undefiled, he's peace loving, he's gentle and courteous. You ever think about God being courteous? He's willing to yield to reason. A. W. Tozer says God is easy to get along with. He's full of compassion and good fruits, whole hearted and straightforward. He's impartial and sincere. That means he's unwavering in his love and kindness, and he's trustworthy. You can depend on him. He's not in a different mood, depending on what mood you're in. Why am I saying all this? Because we as a nation have an appointment with this God. My point in all that we've been covering so far is that God's love for us and his hatred for evil are exactly the same, and that that being true, therefore God's judgment on the United States of America and on the West is inevitable. His dealings with nations have never changed. The cross has dealt with the sin problem once and for all. Because of that glorious fact, Paul tells the Greeks in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, that Before the cross, God overlooked the time of ignorance, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent. Everyone everywhere. All nations are under the sovereign rule of Almighty God. Nations that turn willfully toward evil 
are in a different category from those which are just sitting in ignorance. But what of nations that have known goodness and the blessing of a godly heritage, and not only turned from God, but have become his active enemy? Francis Schaeffer warned three decades ago, quote, it's more dangerous for a people who knew and forgot than for a nation that never knew. If that is true, and it surely is, then how dangerous is it for a people who knew and instead of forgot, remembered and chose to become God's enemy? There are those who say nothing can happen to America because we are the greatest engine for the spreading of the gospel in the world. Now this is a partial truth in a sense that God obviously founded this country as the greatest engine of human freedom ever to exist on the planet. But let's be clear about something. God does not need anything or anyone. We could be as foolish in that thinking as Israel was when they said, nothing can happen to us. We have the covenant. We have the temple. Second, there are other nations like China and Korea and many African countries that are sending out missionaries throughout the world and in their humility may be far more effective than the Western ministries because they do not have the illusion of Western superiority and may be far more childlike and faithful than we have become. After all, we truly think God doesn't need his Holy Spirit to do the work. After all, he has American know-how. Third, God is not held hostage by American evangelicalism as if his holy judgments cannot come lest he make us unhappy and lose our cooperation. Still, if God will withhold the destruction of the entire culture of Sodom for the sake of the presence of just ten righteous, then the salt and light of the true body of Christ throughout this country is good reason to have hope. The praying believers of America, the UK, Europe, are all a kingdom of priests who faithfully stand in the gap to hold back evil and intercede for kingdom goodness to come. But having said that, did you know many of the saints around the world who are suffering for their faith also pray for America and the West? They are praying for a merciful chastisement from God to come upon us in order to deliver us from the sickly mixture of worldly-minded pseudo-Christianity that is the face of American religion. So, with international believers praying for the American church, as well as all the West, and we ourselves standing in the gap for the true body of Christ to arise, what happens in the spirit realm when evil mounts its greatest offensive and is met by strong believing prayer? The result of such a clash of forces will not be a mere settling down of the status quo, there will be massive fallout as nations are moved into position for the final conflict of history. This is where we are. For those who are lazily passing their days in self-deceived comfort and willfully ignorant bliss, continuing in willful sin and embracing a false idea of grace, it will come like a sudden storm. For those who are awake and watching, it will unfold with strategic clarity as we walk with the Lord in the face of whatever comes. Confident that his kingdom rule is being manifested. Daniel 12:10. None of the wicked will understand, but the righteous will understand. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 4. You are not of the night nor of the darkness, that that day should take you, overtake you like a thief. As I heard in my spirit in prayer one morning, quote, It is like the cracking of an eggshell that releases new life. For those tied to the outer shell, it will seem like the end of the world. But for those who are looking for the birth of a new world, it will merely be the breaking open of the outer shell to make way for the life to come. So both are true at the same time. The people of God are salt and light, and it does definitely make a big difference in the world where God's people are located and if they are living in obedience to him. America may be like Egypt under judgment while various Places of safety are like the land of Goshen under supernatural protection. Where we are, the covenant is, and all the blessings of that covenant are present. But that must only be true if we are corporately obeying God and establishing and maintaining an order in line with his word. In other words, a culture of redemptive power. That doesn't mean God doesn't bless individuals in ungodly situations, but to have what I just described as Goshen in Egypt would take a corporate obedience and love and commitment to truth. That we love and care for one another and keep our covenant relationships would be the foundation of such a culture. And even in doing that, there's no absolute guarantee of complete freedom from coming fallout from the world. The facts are that there are godly people scattered all over, and there are places at this exact moment where our brothers and sisters are suffering greatly. It is worse than ludicrous to suggest that they are lacking in covenant blessing because they suffer, just as it's ludicrous to believe that American religion is blessed because it does not suffer. For many in the Middle East, a great tribulation has already been going on for two years. Only God can sort out how it will be that some of us are in a safe place of refuge on earth while others suffer martyrdom. They die in his protective arms. And only eternity will sort out the mystery of who and what and when and how and why. But here's my greatest concern. All that I've said up to this point is to address this subject. What about the people of God who are living as if they are not his people, who are living as the people of Jeremiah's day were living. When God said to them, do you think I'll just stand by and watch, says the Lord? There will be chastening judgments. Now here's the good news, and it is great news to me. They are chastening judgments, not final wrathful judgments. There are many who will come to salvation in the coming days, but who would never be saved had not God shaken us from our current willful, materialist, lustful, blasphemous insanity that has come to represent America and the West. The word chastise or chasten comes from a root word which means to purge, to cleanse, or to rid of excess in order to purify. This is what we referred to previously regarding the misunderstanding of grace. If we think grace means God just covers sin so we can keep doing it, there will be rude awakenings. If we understand God saves us from sin in order to ultimately free us from sin, we will not be in the dark as events unfold which shake the outer shell of this present culture. 
God will not put up with willful ongoing sin in his people, not because of some legalism, but simply because sin by its very nature is life negation. Be thankful for that. What a wonderful thing it will be when the entire body of Christ lives in a spirit of unity of heart and mind that does not compromise with idolatry, lust, worldliness, bitterness, unforgiveness, or pride. We will all love what God loves and hate what God hates. That's pretty close to heaven. So we have looked at the real church, which only God knows, and we have mentioned the carnal church, which God will purge. There's another category. The third category consists of those who are being confronted with the Holy One of Israel and who absolutely reject Him. Psalm 9, verse 17 says, All nations that forget God shall be turned into hell. Again, this is not the threat of a mad, vengeful lawgiver. It is the simple description of reality offered by the one who alone can save them from it. We are now able to observe firsthand how this process of a nation becoming hell happens. It's not coming from some direct action from heaven. It's simply the disintegration of sanity, the complete loss of the good of reason that always comes when people decide they are not going to submit to God and there are no absolutes. All organizational function is in disintegration, as we reject God's boundaries in every area, no, no boundaries in sex, no boundaries in marriage, or even our physical national borders, no boundaries for the nation, no boundaries in our government as three branches run over each other in order to run over the people they were meant to serve, and people's personal lives are without boundaries. Like a body losing its skin, we are people losing our very identity corporately and individually with our insides sliding out in all directions. God ordained the borders of nations in order to provide the nations a means of established order. Romans 13 says all government comes from God. Why? So it might be possible under the ordering of that government for there to be a peaceful civilization, at least enough peace and enough order to be in place to make a way for people to possibly reach out to God and come to know him. Acts 17, verse 26 and 27, he marked out their appointed time in history and their boundaries of the nations in order that they might have opportunity to reach out and find him. Whenever any reach out in response to his grace, he establishes a circle of sanity vital for their well-being so that in that sanity they might seek him. Psalm 74, verse 17, you set all the borders of the earth. But now we're watching the disintegration of borders. Psalm 74, verse 20, have respect for the covenant or the boundaries, or the circle that I just mentioned. For the dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of cruelty. The habitations of cruelty, how well that describes the dark places of the earth, where the covenant grace of God has been rejected or never embraced. Now we are entering the time of decision. Joel 3.13, multitudes of nations are in the valley of decision. Or the word decision in Hebrew is the word for separation or the threshing floor. 
Psalm 2, verse 3, the nations say, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Do away with all boundaries. All boundaries morally, all boundaries nationalistically. Justice is non-existent. Stupidity, cruelty, and licentious wickedness increasingly sit enthroned in various governments of the earth. The nations are disintegrating and realigning in preparation for the final confrontation of history. And the natural result is progressive, and I mean that in both senses, hell. Progressivist hell and progressive hell. We are in a place unprecedented in our history. The true trees planted at the beginning of the nation, the godless humanist tree and the providential godly tree, are each coming into their full ripeness. We are torn politically now nearly 50-50. On the left, there's no moral constraint, so no, there's no compunction about law-breaking. While on the right, there's only a hypocritical lip service to righteous principles, so they act the same, ultimately, by illegal and irrational flooding of the nation with aliens in order to supply their particular party's interests with numerical advantage, with no regard for the destruction such border annihilation creates. Only a people under divine judgment are so mindless that they have to be told the obvious— that a nation without borders will soon cease to be a nation. Still, keep in mind, it could be that God is bringing the harvest right to our door if the church will be awake and act with wisdom. But we are experiencing politically and nationally what we have been choosing morally and spiritually. The prophet Isaiah warned in chapter 24, verse 5 and 6, "...the earth is defiled by its inhabitants." Because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant, therefore the curse devours them. The reference to the changing of the ordinance is referring not to the mere changing of laws, but the very overthrow of the God-ordained meaning of life. We now decide what marriage is, and in a way not done since Noah's flood. We defy the sanctity of life in the name of choice, and the freedom of worship is now only for the freedom to worship every god except the real god. While it's true that America is the greatest engine for good and for the gospel in all of history, it has also become the chief exporter of every vice imaginable. While we have churches everywhere, the general population is a sad mixture of world, flesh, and the devilish. God said to Jeremiah in chapter 5, verse 29, as I've already re referenced, Do you think I'll stand by and allow this? He asks us exactly the same question. The chastisement of God on a nation begins with the disintegration of relationships. It then leads to sexual insanity. This disintegration of family leads to economic collapse, which leads to increased crime, which leads to increased violence, which leads to the infusion of drugs which opens the door for occult spirits. All this disintegration opens the way for disease so that the enemies of that nation then see an opportunity for advantage which creates war. In the midst of that, 
there are natural disasters. But the most painful one of the judgments and chastisements that come on a nation is not even the disintegration of the family, painful as that is, or sexual insanity, or economic issues, or crime, or violence, or drugs, or occultism, or disease, or even war, or natural disaster. No, the most agonizing one is what I have called the absence of grace. That God withdraws his prevenient grace, but also withdraws his revelatory grace so that everyone does what's right in his own eyes, as they did in the book of Judges. That's where we are. But this condition has awakened a greater degree of intercessory prayer and repentance than I've ever seen in my lifetime in in this country and in the West. So God allows this kind of painful scenario only to awaken us to our need and awaken us to prayer. So what what can we begin to look toward? What do we look for that will be the reverse of this scenario? I don't mean when I say a reverse that America is going to be restored and we're going to go back in time to you name when. What time period would you want to go back to? The 50s? The 60s? The 70s? The, uh, the 80s? There, there's no decade you can point to where it was the so-called good old days. Now, I'm not talking about a reversal in that sense. I'm talking about a repentance that moves us forward, further up and further in, to a place we've never been before, looking for a city whose foundations and, and whose builder and maker is God. So where are we and, and what can we look forward to? Well, there is an ever-increasing cry of prayer and repentance going up before God from his people who are awakening to God's heart about our current condition. I've never, in my experience of over 40 years, I've never seen so much prayer, true intercessory prayer going on Yes, there's terrible absence of it, I know, but I'm trying not to focus on that. I'm trying to focus on the increase of, uh, of prayer and pray that it will continue to increase. Number two, there is a personal awakening in individuals about their private needs to deal with long-overlooked relational and uh, moral issues that they have allowed to fester for far too long. And now they're beginning to hit a, a, a point of humility and brokenness that they've never come into before. It's messy, it's difficult, it's painful, but it is good. Ultimately, it is a wonderful thing. It's a bad thing that will bring a, a wonderful result. Number three, there is an awakening need for corporate life together in Christ that is far more than what we have historically referred to as merely going to church. Now, this takes a lot of different forms, and some people over the years lately have been really concerned about what statistically looks like 
a decrease in church attendance. And I, I see those statistics from various parts of the body of Christ. Many of, many of them are compiled by denominations that are worried about their, their bottom line, which is sadly not souls, but income. I'm not concerned about any of that at all. For instance, the, the stats on the life of the church in England and in, in the UK are, are grossly uh, inaccurate because God is doing something that can't be measured by a national church uh, register. There is a, a, a hunger in people for reality, and in order for that hunger to be manifested, many of them have pulled away from a lot of what they've done for years. Now, now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not against any expression of the body of Christ. I love every one of them. And I think you are in some dangerous territory when when we begin to say things like, uh, well, God doesn't use that kind of church anymore, and God doesn't speak from the pulpit anymore. And you know, you don't get into that. Don't sit in judgment of what God will and will not do and what wineskins he's used up and won't use anymore and all that kind of stuff. God God is moving in many, many areas that uh, you and I maybe years ago would have thought he can't use. We're learning a lot about how erroneous we are about some of those things we used to think so dogmatically about. I I referred a few minutes ago to the fact that if there is to be a land of Goshen, protected region here and there in the country, and I'm not saying that there will be or that that's a certainty, but if there is to be some kind of areas of protection or areas of special blessing or healing, such a region cannot simply come into existence because you and I happen to live there, so God will put some kind of bubble over us because we're there. Such a city of refuge situation will only happen where brothers and sisters fulfill the words of Psalm 133, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's like the anointing oil that pours down the head, for there the Lord commands the blessing. That's that's the kind of gathering of the body of believers that the Holy Spirit is forming. Now, he can form that in an already established denominational setting, like an Anglican liturgy, or he can form that out of a body of ragtag people who have suffered through a hundred church splits and meet in somebody's garage. Uh, that's that. Don't get focused on what kind of wineskin. Get focused on the new wine. Now, this event has to happen. This kind of coming into unity and coming into love, relationship with one another, has to happen. Why? Because Jesus prayed for it to happen in the great high priestly prayer of John 17. It has to come to pass. Father, that they all may be one as you and I are one so that the world will know that you sent me. I don't believe we will ever come into this level of loving unity without a shattering of our selfish, Western, individualistic way of of, uh, life. Now, that may mean a shaking must come that will 
cause us to become willing to open our hearts, our homes, our wallets, and our lives to each other on an unprecedented level. I'm not necessarily referring to a re-engaging of Acts chapter 2 in what was called the Jerusalem experiment by some. And i got to be honest, I, I remember back in the 70s, there were different groups that tried to reenact Acts chapter 2 where everyone had everything in common. And uh, what I what I really remember about it was how many leaders of such groups who became so jaded by the the mess that it created that they wouldn't even let anybody borrow their lawnmower ever again. But looking backward to find how this is going to work uh, that I'm talking about won't won't help us because it's what we're talking about is unprecedented. Nothing's ever happened like this before. Now, the reason, again, that this has to happen, that, that what we know as church, what we know as relating to one another and loving one another and being the family of God has to go way beyond what we have had up till now, is Psalm 68, verse 3 and 5 says, God is a father of the fatherless, a protector of the widow and the orphan. He sets the lonely into families, and there he breaks their chains. There are about 53 references to one another in the New Testament in various forms, not necessarily one another, but there are 53 scriptural references that deal with our relations to one another. In reviewing that list of scriptures, which refers to how we are to relate to each other, I can find only a handful of verses which a Sunday morning church culture allows for. The many other one another's we do not obey are the ones which would bring healing to the most broken among us if we did obey them. But we don't obey them, which is why so many among us never seem to get truly delivered and stay delivered, never get really healed, never get fully set free of besetting sins. God's committed to the healing of his children and the unity of his family so that the world can see and know who he is. So whatever it takes to bring about this level of unity, love, and release of healing power and holiness, God will bring that about. Now, we all love miracles. We just don't like to need miracles. But in this level of shaking, the miraculous will become more apparent. On the mere fleshly comfort level, this will be difficult. But on the far more important heart level, where so much suffering is occurring in people's lives due to wounds, broken relationships, addictions, and besetting sins, this will be the most wonderful deliverance as the Holy Spirit pours down from the head upon the unified body. For there the Lord commands the blessing to overtake us, even life forevermore. Now, it's perfectly understandable that many of you would say, how are we ever going to come into that kind of unity? Well, for men it's impossible, for but for God it's not impossible. And uh, God has ways of melting away. You remember the word chastisement? I told you one of the, one of the characteristics of chastisement is doing away with excess in order to bring forth purity. God knows how to do away with the excesses that we in our foolishness have made primary. 
God knows how to make the primary things primary and the secondary things secondary. Unity doesn't mean that we all come into uniformity. I love the different shades of expression of the body of Christ. Uh, the, the, the Reformed theology, which has given such a solid and uh, essential vision of the holiness of God, the authority and trustworthiness of Scripture. Uh, and of course, we all know what God has done through the flow of the re- restoration of the, ho- of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. But there's been a sad declension between those two parts of the body. Basically, you could almost divide the body of Christ uh, in the West between those two points of view, evangelicalism and charismaticism, if you want to use an ism term. Smith Wigglesworth, one of the great, great voices of restoration uh, of the healing gifts to the church, who died in 1947, gave this prophetic word before he went to be with the Lord concerning what will happen when Reformed theology and charismatic theology come into proper union with one another. He doesn't use those terms, but that's what he's referring to when he talks about word and spirit. He says, during the next few decades, remember he's saying this in the late 40s, during the next few decades there will be two distinct moves of the Holy Spirit across the church. The first move will affect every church that is open to receive it and will be characterized by a restoration of the baptism and gifts of the Holy Spirit. The second move of the Holy Spirit will result in people leaving historic churches and planting new churches. And in the duration of each of these moves, the people who are involved will say, this is the great revival. But the Lord says, no, neither is the great revival, but both are steps towards it. When the new church phase is on the wane, there will be evidenced in the churches something that has not been seen before, a coming together of those with an emphasis on the Word and those with an emphasis on the Spirit. When the Word and the Spirit come together, there will be the biggest movement of the Holy Spirit that the nation and the nations have seen. It will mark the beginning of of the revival that will eclipse anything that has been witnessed within these shores, even the Wesleyan and the Welch revivals of former years. The outpouring of God's Spirit will flow over from the UK to the mainland of Europe, and from there will begin a missionary move to the ends of the earth. I believe we're there right now. That that I just read to you, by the way, is quoted from an absolutely vitally important book that you need to get by Dr. R.T. Kendall called Holy Fire, where he actually addresses the rise of the coming together of the Word and the Spirit. You know, the old Pentecostals used to say, too much Word with no Spirit and you dry up. Too much Spirit with no Word and you blow up. Word and Spirit and you grow up. Well, it's time for the church to grow up. It's time for charismatics to get back into the scriptures and obey them. And it's time for cessationists who have rather arrogantly de- decreed, even though they claim to believe the Bible, that there's parts of the Bible they've chosen not to believe or practice, to repent of that. And when it happens, 
combination of the two will ignite a fire of the Spirit unseen in this generation or any other generation for that matter. And very possibly will be the closing move of the Spirit that brings us to the end of the age. Finally, the last thing that will arise in this next wave of the Spirit in the church is a a dying to self that will make martyrdom seem less daunting a possibility should we have to face martyrdom. When we live tied to the eggshell and the eggshell begins to crack, we crack with it. But when we've died to the outer eggshell of the world and long for the birthing of the the world to come and the life of the age to come, it will be as if we are already more there than we are here. That doesn't mean that there's not the trauma of the final burden of death. But death has lost its sting, and the grave has lost its victory. And for those of us who embrace the cross and allow the Holy Spirit to take us through the dying process needed to prepare us for uh, the age to come, death in the physical will not seem nearly so daunting nor will it torment us with fear. We've died to this world. We are more alive to the world to come than we are to this one. And as a result of that, we are more effective for the world to come in this one. We are so heavenly-minded that we are then of some earthly good. Well, thanks for listening. God willing, I'll be able to speak to you again next time.